Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My two guests today are Dr. Miles Wernz, who has a PhD from Baylor University. He's Associate Professor of Theology and Director of Baptist Studies at Abilene, 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 Abilene uh, Christian University in Abilene, Texas, the same location that his university is named after. Um, he's also the author of several books, including uh, Bodies of Peace and the most recent a field guide to Christian nonviolence, which he co-authored with my, with my other guest, Dr. David Kramer, who also has a PhD from Baylor University. He's the managing editor at the Institute of Mennonite Studies, a uh, uh, sessional lecturer at Anabaptist Mennonite, Mennonite Biblical Seminary and teaching pastor at Keller Park Church in South Bend, Indiana. In this episode, we discussed all things related to Christian non- nonviolence, both things that are related to their book, A Field Guide to Christian Nonviolence, and also other things related to the topic. So please welcome to the show uh, for the first time, the one and only dynamic duo, Miles and David. All right. Hey, friends. I'm here with uh, Miles. David, hey, guys. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. Uh, we both go back quite a ways. Um, David, I mean, you. I, I came across your, your name and work. Was it through um, Justin uh, Bar- Bronson? Yeah, very well could have been. I think that was the connection. Because yeah, he was working on that. He was working on that book. Um a faith not worth fighting for, I think. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I actually wrote a review in the Mennonite Quarterly Review of your book Fight that right. I think you said has a new name now, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a uh, uh, nonviolence, the revolutionary way of Jesus. Um, yeah. Are we? I, 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 have we actually met in person? I can't remember if we've met in person. I know. I, we don't, cor- I don't think so. Just corresponded on okay. email and social media and stuff. Cool. And then Miles, we were on a panel together of. Uh, was it nonviolence versus just war theory or something like that? That was a little intimidating. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those uh, one of the classic just war versus nonviolence panels. <laughs> uh, yeah, we actually talk about that. I talk. I mentioned that in the in the introduction to the book that that was one of the impetuses that that really started. There were like a there were like a few things that came together that really I think pushed us to do this book. And me being on that panel was was kind of the tipping point for me. Okay, in the the, the just war, like I knew, like, I mean, this is, this is a topic that I read and write on a lot. So I know all the just war arguments and keep up with the literature and all that. But it just, it was frustrating to me because it felt like the, the folks from the just war position had no idea what Christian nonviolence consisted of <laughs> apart from the, apart from like the Schleitheim confession and like a couple of chapters of Yoder's politics of Jesus. So, yeah. It's just yeah, and then David at the same David at the same time was writing had just written this article for Sojourners, okay. in which he mapped out what became the basis for the book, kind of offering a, a typology of the different ways in which Christian nonviolence had unfolded. Well, I mean, there's uh, some I already so have those, a bunch of questions, um, especially with that panel. That that was an interesting. I didn't know what to expect wandering into it, and I would just um, kind of like you is you know more more convinced in my position largely because of. I don't want to say ignorance, like that sounds negative, but there was like an, uh, a lack of familiarity with with uh, Christian nonviolence. They just kind of seem to address base level kind of 
surface level arguments of just pacifism in general, kind of like, yeah, it doesn't work or whatever. Sure. <laughs> I don't know. It wasn't, wasn't really theologically right, right, right. astute, you know? And we, we, I remember going, getting into Romans 13 and some of the background there. And it was like, they didn't even, I don't know. It was frustrating, but also encouraging because I was like, oh, okay, so I'm not, I'm not out to lunch, but um, wh- why don't we start, uh, start with you, David? How, how did you, maybe a quick background about who you are and how you got into this topic. And maybe like for both of you, like what, Tell us about that journey of becoming convinced that nonviolence is the best representation of of, of Christianity. Yeah, just a brief uh, introduction to who I am. I'm a pastor at Keller Park Church, which is a Mennonite church in South Bend, Indiana. We actually just became Mennonite this past year, so that's a part of my story as well. Um, but um, I also work at Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary, I think, this mug I'm <laughs> drinking from has the logo on there. Um, and uh, a lot of your listeners might recognize that name as associated with John Howard Yoder, who taught mm-hmm. there for about 30 years, um, author of The Politics of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that's a part of our story as well. So we'll talk about that, I'm sure, as we get into the interview. Um, but my role there, in addition to some courses on uh, kind of Christian attitudes to war, peace, and revolution, and related topics um, is to work at the Institute of Mennonite Studies. Um, I'm the managing editor there, so we do publications in Mennonite theology and ethics and all that. Um, so, how did I get here? <laughs> um, I guess you could go all the way back to kind of pre 9 11. Um, I grew up in a fairly conservative, white evangelical context. Um, You know, we went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you know, heavily involved in the youth group and all that type of thing. And at that time, you know, junior high and high school, I would have considered myself Christian, Republican, American, you know, all of those things, um, probably in about that order. And, um, I think it was with 9-11 and kind of reflecting on that and kind of um, American Christian, especially evangelical response to that, that it started to raise questions in my mind about sort of that whole package deal of sort of God and country. And so um, through reading works in um, Anabaptist theology then in seminary and beyond, um, started to come more in the direction of a um, nonviolent approach. I would have probably just called myself a Jesus y pacifist or something like that. <laughs> um, but a lot of that um, approach was influenced heavily by Howard Yoder. And so mm-hmm. I met Miles in 2011 when we were at Baylor together in PhD programs in theology and ethics. And we're both there to study Yoder's theology and writing dissertations on him. and Around that time, some um, survivors and advocates sort of blew open the story that had long been kind of a well-kept, not so well-kept secret, I guess, Mm -hmm. about his own um, history of sexualized violence. Um, And that had been something that I sort of had heard rumors about and heard different takes on, but not really let that... um, sink into my approach to nonviolence. And so Hmm. that kind of sent me on a whole new trajectory then of working out 
how does nonviolence relate to all these other areas of life, not just the debates between just war and pacifists, mm. but also how we live our lives as Christians in the church, in our homes, and all that type of thing. So wow. that's kind of fast-forwarding to how we get to the book, a bit of my journey. I, I'm going to ask uh, Miles this too, but I'll ask you before you pass it over to Miles. Like, What do you think is the best argument against Christian nonviolence. <laughs> like, wait, is there, is there one kind of thing where like, man, this, this one's tough. Like I can see where people are coming from here, you know? Um, um, well, one of, one of the, you know, biggest advocates of Christian nonviolence in the 20th and early 21st century was, is Stanley Hauerwas, mm-hmm. who was a close friend of Yoder's and, and he, he would talk about one of the best arguments for nonviolence being the witness of Christians and the witness of the church, especially as it lives out nonviolence. And so I think if we take that argument seriously, then I think we have to say the inverse is also true, that the best argument against nonviolence is when we see that fail to um, be lived out by people who are advocating that very view. So I think we have to take very seriously kind of walk and word together. Um, and that's something that, yeah, we're still grappling with. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right, Miles, give us a little background who you are. And uh, I'll, ask, I'll end up asking you that same question. Yeah. So I teach theology and direct the Baptist Study Center at uh, Abilene Christian University. Been here for about two years. Uh, taught a bunch of other places. Uh, yeah. Preston, so you and I first met when we were um, we were on a panel together in what 2015. I think so. Yeah, yeah, I was teaching at Palm Beach Atlantic in Florida at the time. So my journey into Christian nonviolence came. uh, It really started, I think, uh, in 2001 with uh, with 9/11. I think that's that's Hmm. not 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 an uncommon story. Uh, So I was in a class. I was in seminary at the time was in an early morning uh, class. The administrative assistant came in, told us we needed to turn on the TV, and so we were just transfixed for a couple of hours. And so after I walked out of the building that morning, I was walking in my car, not sure what I was going to do with the rest of the day, just because nothing really seemed like the normal thing to do. And just out of nowhere, heard like the, the, the passage from Matthew kind of, ringing in my ears of love your enemy Hmm. and i thought this is such an in like this 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 statement doesn't make any sense Hmm. in contrast to what i've just seen on the tv it just seemed to be such an utter contradiction that i couldn't quite i couldn't shake it and i didn't quite know what to do with it um it was not that i i mean it wasn't that i grew up in a like a a militant background i mean i grew up near an air force base and Mm -hmm. I think it was kind of the presumption that that's that's how it that's how it worked, um, but it, it just never really occurred to me to even think about the question of nonviolence. I think until that until that point, hmm. and so that then began just kind of a very slow process of of sorting through uh, these questions of what it means to be a Christian in a world which is uh, which is surrounded in violence. Uh, Part of what we do in the book is talk about the ways in which violence is not simply kind of international geopolitics, but it's also kind of the the, the intimate sorts of violence that occur mm, yeah. within the space of relationships and 
around issues of uh, sexual identity and all these kinds of things. So mm-hmm. the violence from from the highest levels to the smallest moments uh, is just a it's just endemic within what it is to be a, a creature in the world. So yeah, see, I'm looking at the table of contents, and you have a chapter A is on resisting sexual and gender based violence. So yeah, that I think that's really helpful that this book covers a whole gamut. It's not just about public policy or warfare or even biblical theology, you know, in and of itself, but you're trying to apply it to all areas of life. Is that, would that be an accurate assessment and and kind of a unique contribution of the book? Yeah, I think so. I mean, just a a brief overview of the book, we're we're kind of laying out eight different approaches to Christian nonviolence. And that's part of what Miles was talking about on that panel, where there's just the assumption that Christian nonviolence is this one thing, Mm -hmm. kind of this static view um, that might be associated with the Schleitheim confession from the radical reformers or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just think we know what it is. And and what the book does is tries to like blow that up and say, it's not just a simple single thing, but it's actually this living tradition mm-hmm. that there's multiple streams um, that kind of merge and diverge in all kinds of different ways. And so we look at eight different streams of nonviolence um, that you can find throughout the 20th and 21st century okay. and kind of what their underlying logics are, um, what their underlying biblical, theological, ethical kind of um, uh, grounding is, and then how that lives out in the world. And so that last chapter on, um, we call it Christian anti-violence, which is resistance to sexualized and gender-based based violence isn't just like a, an add-on to traditional um, kind of discipleship-based Christian nonviolence that we might sometimes think of, but in some ways it's actually resisting certain moves within mm-hmm. that, that kind of nonviolence. And so not all of these views build on each other. Mm-hmm. Um, times they do, and we can talk about ways they they relate or influence each other, but sometimes they're actually talking back and forth to each other. So the arguments aren't necessarily just pacifists versus just warriors, but sometimes yeah. it's an internal debate among those committed to something like nonviolence. Right. You know, so About- my, my audience is, is, you know, a lot of people listening, very, you know, biblically centered, um, probably all over the map denominationally, and even theologically pretty diverse. But I think, you know, most people listening, you know, the, the Bible's a big deal in their, in their life. Um, how, could you, and, and you could tag team this if you want, but like un, for somebody who's not that familiar with Christian nonviolence and how this squares with the Bible, um, how, give us a quick overview of, of your understanding of how the scriptures promote, you know, Christian nonviolence. Obviously you have, you know, Old Testament's, you know, an issue. There's all kinds of warfare, even sometimes commanded by God. You've got, you know, um, certain, you know, temple cleansing passages in the New Testament and stuff. But yeah, what's what's your understanding of how the Bible promotes this vision? Miles, you want to take a couple of passages, and I can sure, add on some yeah, things? yeah, yeah. So I think probably the, the the most familiar passage to your audience is probably going to be what you find with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in which Jesus tells his disciples to turn the other cheek. Uh, to pray for those that are persecuting them to go the second mile. Um, this is kind of the, this is in some ways ground zero uh, in that it's the most explicit. It gives uh, this just explicit warrant that when you're dealing with even those who are your enemies, this is how you are to, 
this is our year to do it. Um, but I think it really goes beyond that. You have once you get into, I think the the letters, then it's it's the under it's the undergirding assumption that we are to be uh, we are to be truthful with one another, but we're to be patient with one another. That we're not to um, enact you know different kinds of violence toward one another. You have Paul describing kind of some of the abuses that are taking place in the churches as what we now would describe as forms of violence against like, so exclusion of people from meals or, mm-hmm. or, the, or the mistreatment of the poor um, as the different chapters in the book, will kind of touch on those and describe those as different kinds of violations toward other people mm-hmm. that the way that we engage with one another uh, sexually or the way that we engage with our economics, that these can all be forms of uh, degrading and violent behavior toward another person. Mm-hmm. So um, even though there's no, so you don't find you don't find as many like explicit warrants in the letters of Paul, but it 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 follows from the same premise that this is one of the undergirding uh, themes of what it is to be a Christian mm-hmm. is to behave in this way in a world which will not frequently return the favor, right? So even if you engage in the world in a way which following Jesus exercises nonviolence, don't expect that it's going to work out well, right? Frequently it won't. Uh, David, you want to you want to yeah. pick up from there? I think we might have lost David. He's mesmerized. He's just. So, I wish people could see his his frozen face on the screen right now. He's just like staring off into the ether. <laughs> um, well, while we're getting David back, uh, what, what about the Old Testament? That's typically, I would say. I mean, you know, people go to various passages in the, New, in the New Testament, but I think people take it as a given that, like, God didn't just allow warfare mm-hmm. to happen. That's one thing. That's the is. But there's also some ought, right? Some commands in the Bible, Deuteronomy 20 and, yeah. and others, um, yeah. the, the Canaanites and all these things. Mm-hmm. Like, how, how do you respond mm-hmm. to how do you respond to that? So I think the the way that I would the way that I typically respond to it is by taking a look at the ways in which early Christians interpreted those passages. Um, so they interpreted it in a way that doesn't uh, that doesn't try to to wave them away and doesn't try to uh, doesn't try to dismiss them, but they engage with them in a way that that reads them uh, typologically or spiritually. So one exa- one great example here. Uh, so you have an interpreter, Origen of Alexandria, who writes a commentary on Joshua. And so when he's dealing with these passages of, well, what do you do with, you know, God commanding, uh, what do you do with God commanding warfare? Um, he reads that and says, yeah, I, what, how we are to read this today is that we're to read this as a struggle against sin. Like we're not to take this as a new kind of an ongoing commandment to enact violence against our enemies, but in light of Christ, we mm-hmm. now read these passages in a way which takes seriously like the struggle against sin, but also takes seriously the commandment of Jesus to not do violence against our enemies. Now, right? he's not origin wouldn't deny that that is not a literal historical event that happened, right? He's not saying that. Right? Yeah, I don't think I, I don't think that he would deny that. Um, I think that he takes it he takes it for granted that that happens. Right. I think there's a way of dealing with the Old Testament that would try to maybe. Uh, mythologize it or to uh, to say maybe that was just their understanding of what God commanded, but that's yeah. not the that's I haven't read that in a minute, but it, that's not my remember like how Origin deals with that. 
I think that he just kind of takes it for face value and says that may have been what was uh, what was appropriate then, but in light of Christ, that's just not on right. the table. So, and we have, I mean, just to add, and this is, I mean, in my in my book, I mean, that's why I have three or four chapters just on the Old Testament because I really, I, I didn't feel comfortable, you know, and I know I've got friends who who take that interpretation that Miles you articulated that you know this they they misheard God or this is an Israelite way of understanding what they okay. thought God said, but he really didn't. And I just, um, you know, I've talked with Greg Boyd about this and, and yeah. he takes, I, and I don't want to misrepresent his view, but a, a kind of an approach kind of like that. And I just, I don't know, like uh, even with the Canaanite command, the command to kill the Canaanites. And I, th- I think a good biblical case can be made that it wasn't every man, woman, and child. That's not because I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I mean, I am, but, I think there's exegetical evidence for that when you look at the nature of the command in Deuteronomy 20, 16 to 17, and its fulfillment in Joshua 10 and other passages where, and I don't want to get lost in the weeds, but um, we know that they, okay, so you have the command in twenty in Deuteronomy 20, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Okay, seems to be comprehensive. Um, and you have in Joshua 10, uh, I forget the verse. Trust me, it's there. Ten thirty, I think. Um, uh, where there seems to be cl- a clear statement that that command was fulfilled. We, we, uh, we took the land, you know, the north and the south, the foothills and the valleys, according to the command of the Lord. And it seems to be very clearly referring to Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. So whatever Deuteronomy is commanding, jo- the Book of Joshua says we did it. But we know for a fact from the book of Joshua that they didn't kill everybody. So right. there right, seems right. to be some... There's a, there's a little bit of little bit of hyperbole there. Yeah, which is yeah. very common in warfare rhetoric in the ancient world and common in the biblical text, you know. Um, a sure. million men didn't march up from <laughs> Ethiopia, you know, in, in, in uh, Chronicles or whatever. Like, that just didn't happen. That's not... There wasn't that many people then. Um, so, yeah, anyway, I, I don't want to get lost in the weeds, but... Um, even still, even even if it's not a comprehensive command to annihilate every man, woman, and child, even if it is kind of like take the land, slaughter a bunch of people, um, I still think that, I don't know, to, to say that, because they're rebuked for not fulfilling that. Like the entire book of Judges is premised on the fact that they didn't do that command, and then they ended up intermarrying with the Canaanites, and that leads to problems. And so, so you have this, this huge thread all throughout the Old Testament that is that is connected to this Canaanite this command to conquer the land through violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, if you if you say no, that's that's not really what God said. There's just so much. I th- it just seems like that creates many more problems than it solves. Um, David, you were gone for a little bit. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, any thought? I don't even know if you. I mean, are. are are you familiar with like Boyd's position or, and I don't want to keep saying this because I, I have not read his books. So I don't want to misrepresent him, but um, how do you handle the command to slaughter the Canaanites and Deuteronomy and others? I mean, I might get in trouble by some of my Mennonite friends for saying this, my peers <laughs> for saying this, but I just don't think the Bible is strictly speaking pacifist. I don't think that's really necessarily what, is required to commit oneself to Christian nonviolence. And so um, I'm sure you're familiar with like Christian Smith's work, The Bible Made Impossible, where 
whatever you might think of his overall take on it. Um, I think his main point of like, what is the point of the Bible? <laughs> what is it trying mm-hmm. to do? Is it trying to answer every last ethical question for us? Or is it trying to point us to God as revealed in Jesus? And then it's sort of our job as Christians to live our lives in, in response to that revelation. And so, you know, I have many friends um, and yeah, you mentioned Boyd, I'm familiar with his work who do a lot of kind of exegetical hermeneutical work to try to make the Old Testament sound more nonviolent than I think it is. Um, I think there are streams within the Old Testament that um, kind of present a way of unfolding into a nonviolent life. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, God also in early chapters in Genesis seems to be very upset with humanity precisely because of its violence. And so it seems as though when you look at Genesis 6, that the um, sign that the world had become so corrupt was the increase in violence. Mm -hmm. So it seems clear that there's some fall from an ideal that would have been a more, you know, this vision of shalom. And then in the prophets, you see them kind of hearkening back to that vision and looking to sort of, an eschatological realization of that vision. So I kind of go different, you know, depending on the day of the week, kind of how I deal with those passages in Deuteronomy. Like, is it kind of what Paul does in Romans 12, where he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So, you know, basically if God commands it, that's up to God. But unless we get that command, that's not up to us. And so the ethic that is presented there in Romans 12 is very much in line with the Sermon on the Mount, right. even though it's predicated on this somewhat violent you know, text of leaving vengeance up to God. Um, but then you have other passages like in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, be perfect because your heavenly father is perfect. And it seems like the ethic is one of imitation. And so it's trying to be more like God. And if that's the case, it kind of raises the question of yeah. if we're called to imitate God, is God nonviolent or is God's quote unquote violence something that we're not, you know, supposed to imitate because of our creaturely finitude? Yeah. It, it seems, I mean, of, of course there's aspects of God's character that we're supposed to imitate, but also, I don't know, not to be too, to, you know, simplify a complicated theological issue but of course we're also not to imitate god in certain ways too you know i mean and, and especially mm-hmm. that's i i just talking to one of my kids about this the other day and they, they had a hard time with it and i got i never i never really did like vengeance is mine therefore you don't take vengeance and she's like well how come god gets to take vengeance I mean, he's, he's god like he's, <laughs> he has a right to do whatever he wants we don't have that uh right so i i don't know um we imitate God when he says, imitate me in this area, but there's areas what he explicitly says, don't, you don't do this because I'm going to take care of it. And, um, it's, it just seems natural that like, like God alone would be the one that would execute judgment perfectly. Um, he knows, you know, like we, no human would be capable of doing that. So I don't, I don't know. Um, that's never really bothered me, but, um, for, for me, it was, it was, you know, if you ask the question, is there any evidence 
that Christians, okay, so now we're dealing with new, a new covenant ethic. We, we know clearly there are ethical differences and trajectories between the old covenant and new, right? There's things permitted in the old that are prohibited in the new and things permitted in the old, pro, well, whatever, flip it around. <laughs> I think I messed it up. You know, like that's just, you know, and anybody that didn't go to church with a lamb on their shoulder agrees with me, right? There, there's certain things that the Old Testament says don't do that we're fine doing. So there's, there's differences between the old and new. And for me, the leading question is, is there any New Testament evidence, any, any evidence that God wants Christians to use violence to confront evil? Like, so I know everybody's thinking about the, the attacker at the door or what about, you know, what about China invades America? All these scenarios that people bring up, I'm like, okay, is there any evidence in the New Testament, which was written in the backdrop against a lot of evil and a lot of violence? Like it was these, these were live options. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> evil was right. everywhere. Mm-hmm. Violence is everywhere. This is, this is not like, oh, they didn't have these categories in mind. No, that, these are the primary categories that existed against that backdrop, against a very violent mm-hmm. Jewish movement is born this new brand of Judaism that morphed into Christianity. Um, there's no, I, I don't see any evidence in the New Testament where God allows or desires or commands violence as, as a means for a Christian to confront evil uh, in the world. Um, this is, this is Howard Thurman's point in the first chapter of God of, of uh, Jesus and the disinherited or Jesus and the, yeah, Jesus and the disinherited hmm. uh, that he, he makes the comparison between kind of first century Galilee and his own, his own experience and just said, yeah, the reason that Jesus can command this is because Jesus knows what it is to be disinherited, to be of the oppressed. Huh. And so the, Jesus is ex, like Jesus's own experience of being in that situation where violence is a very real option and the violence is just very present is what is what gives the credibility toward his his huh. statement about nonviolence. Yeah. So it's not. Yeah, it's exactly that. It's not like this is an unrealistic thing because Jesus didn't know anything about like you know, the intruder at the door or the attacker at the gate or whatever. Right. Um, but rather the opposite. Yeah. But this is intimately known. So of course, yeah. And he's still going to, and he still says it. Yeah. So. And I would also want to add that Jesus is himself Jewish. And so he is, you know, fulfilling an option within Judaism. I don't want to paint the, you know, distinction too sharply between like the old covenant and the new in the sense that there's not, continuity there. Um, This isn't a Marcionite type of perspective um, Mm -hmm. or, Mm -hmm. you know, supersessionist or whatever. Um, Jesus is drawing on the prophets who are pointing in this direction Mm -hmm. already. Um, And so I think there's development, however you understand development within scripture, I think there's development even within the Old Testament as you move into the prophets where even someone like Jeremiah is saying like, hey guys, we're not going to fight back here. We're going to trust in God for deliverance and we're going to go and seek the peace of the city to which we've been called and in, in their prosperity lies our prosperity. And so, you know, Jeremiah very well could have said, let's form an alliance with Egypt to fight mm-hmm. off the Babylon, the Babylonians. And he didn't take that option. So I do think there's continuity and difference. And Isaiah too. I mean, I wouldn't quite call Isaiah a pacifist, but he's headed. Well, he he is very. I'm not Isaiah, but the God revealed through the Book of Isaiah. It's very anti-militaristic, and you know, most people mm-hmm. know Isaiah just through kind of 
cool quotes here and there, you know, they're encouraging for spiritual living, whatever. But if you, if you follow the storyline of Isaiah against its background, like you said, I mean, the I think Isaiah, I want to say 31, like the, this, the command don't go down and, and, uh, make, make an alliance with Egypt. I, again, this is, it's been a while since I studied it, so I might be butchering it, but there's a lot of stuff there that doesn't leap off the pages. Cause we're not familiar with the categories that Isaiah is working with, but I remember working through the whole book, in preparation for my, from for my book and um and yeah I was just shocked at how anti-militaristic it is. Uh I wouldn't say quite say like if all we had was Isaiah we would all be absolute pacifists but um there is a critique against military might against going yeah going to war and I don't think it's just like don't go to war because mm-hmm. you're going to get your butts kicked like you know <laughs> we have the well, whole story of Sennacherib and the sl- slaughter you know 175,000 like no, God can do what he wants to do. Um, so it's not just, you know, you're a weaker military force, therefore it's not wise for you to go to war. It's kind of like, no, let's let's stop this warfare thing, trust in God for for deliverance. So it's almost like Isaiah and in Jeremiah, the prophets, like, well, this is what you said, David, that it's almost, it forms this bridge between kind of a more violent, deeper Old Testament history and the Sermon on the Mount. The, the prophets give us kind of the, a segue to the sermon. I think there's already some kind of gestures in that direction earlier on. So even in some of the books you cited earlier, you know, Deuteronomy and Joshua. um, So kind of um, pre-United Monarchy, there are warnings about militarism and nationalism even then. So Mm -hmm. when, you know, when the people come and ask Samuel for a king, he's quoting from Deuteronomy, blessings and Mm -hmm. curses to say like, if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get, but here's what it's going to lead to. And so I see a sharp critique even there of militarism. So I think the, yeah, yeah. The all your kids are going to get, cons- are your kids are going to get conscripted. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, uh, first Samuel eight, I mean, they want a militaristic King, a King like the nations, mm-hmm. right. Who will go out and fight our battles. And, and again, if you compare that to what we know about other, nations around the time yet yeah, profoundly militaristic and then the king was the military leader and you know um then that that's that's who they wanted um and so yeah samuel's critique is it it is a it's not just a critique of kind of this abstract critique of no god's your king don't you don't want a human king it's 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 more specific than that it's like no you want this kind of military leader with a military machine and it's not going to lead well but i'll give it to you anyway and that's exactly what ends up happening um Okay, well, one more, and I uh, I want to actually get to some of the stuff in, in the book, but I have to ask. I mean, the the, argu- the argument I feel like I always get from um, uh, like biblical Christians isn't really a biblical argument. It's wait, you're just going to let your wife and kids get raped by somebody breaking into your house? Like how how could you? I've I've, I've had more people get visibly upset um, at me when I talk about nonviolence and it's really comes down to to this like you're just going to let this kind of mm-hmm. evil run wild how, how do you guys respond to that argument um the killer at the door i mean david when you david when you when you gave your strongest objection and said that it was uh it was one of do christians actually practice this this is this is the one that i think about is the mm-hmm. is the suffering of the innocent yeah like that's the that's the question that that raised gets raised for me that in, so in the book, I think one of the one of the questions that um, advocates for nonviolence wrestle with 
is what, you know, what does it mean to be nonviolent and yet present within spaces of suffering? Mm. Right. So it doesn't, it's not a, it's, it doesn't wind up being a zero sum game of either you let evil go unchecked and run wild or mm-hmm. you, uh, take up lethal arm like like lethal means and destroy attackers like it's not a it's not a zero like it's not a, it's not an on off switch in that respect so there's all sorts of, sorts of folks that talk about um the ways in which uh some of uh, so, so one of the things that we that we mentioned briefly that one of the things i think that probably would need to do more work on is the is the role of say restraint or the role of deterrence or the role of uh, it doing it, you know, doing away with the the things which are causing the violence. So, in the instance you're describing, kind of the attacker at the door scenario, there's a there's a lot there's a lot of things that can happen between uh, disarming an attacker and killing them, mm-hmm. right? There is restraint that can happen. There is disarming the weapon. There is you know the there's putting yourself in the way of those that would be attacked there. You know, there's, there's a lot of options which are on the table here other than mm-hmm. I need to kill the person who is at the door. Yeah. Yeah. David, you have thoughts so, on this? Yeah. I mean, um, I, I probably am going to push back on the way that question framed because it kind of goes to an extreme in order to kind of make a rhetorical point, um, and there are people answer head on. So you know, in that book, we talk about your faith not worth fighting for. There's an essay in there by um, Amy Warhol and Kara Slade who talk about that very question. Mm-hmm. But to me, I would, I would kind of say, the attacker more often than not is already within the door. <laughs> Most <laughs> sexual violence or violence that happens is from someone in the house. And how is a church responding? two revelations of that that are happening all around us. And so we can kind of create this heroic sense of like, I would valiantly stand up and fight to save my spouse's honor or whatever in this Mm -hmm. extreme situation. But then when we hear stories of abuse happening within our church, oftentimes those very same people are resistant to doing what's necessary to address that in a real way. So that might sound evasive, but I think when 99.99% of those kinds of scenarios are coming from within the home, to look at the 0.01% as an argument against nonviolence to me seems kind of like a bit of a red herring. So, but okay, but let's, how would you deal with the 0.01? Cause it, I mean, it, 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 yeah. I mean, theoretical situations, and not that this is purely like, uh, you know, we are speaking out of privilege a bit. I mean, this this is more real for certain populations than, than maybe for us. But um, let's just say there is that, you know, person who is storming the door. Like, do you think there is could be a place for violence as the lesser of two evils or defense of the innocent? Um I think physical constraint is one thing. I would say that I don't live my life in such a way to prepare myself for that violent uh, encounter. So Mm. I don't stockpile guns in my house. 
I don't have any kind of violent weapon that I'm aware of. I'm sure I could find something if I needed to, but I'm not living my life as a Christian in such a way that I'm constantly vigilantly preparing for Mm -hmm. how I'm going to violently defend my own life or my family. So in that moment, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll use some kind of force if, you know, that ever came about, um, hopefully to restrain that person and not to inflict violence Mm -hmm. on them. Um, so I think Christian nonviolence can get conflated with sort of the historic non-resistance view, which is a little bit different, which is Mm -hmm. like, we, you know, don't, uh, engage violence or the world or the attacker in any way. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it's historic Mennonite or Amish communities. Some of them would adhere to that type of view. That's not really quite what we're doing in this book on Christian nonviolence. Mm-hmm. There's very active ways to engage violence nonviolently. Yeah. 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 Peter, it, uh, Peter uh, Ackerman's a, sorry, Go ahead, go ahead. Title is something like a, it's a new as a new kind of force, and which I think gets at the at the heart of what the book is trying to do is that nonviolence is not passive right. in the sense of withdrawal. I think that that's a common misconception of what nonviolence does, but it seeks to actively engage in a way which uh lowers the temperature or it uh it's it's better conceived of as as different modes of peacemaking and mm-hmm. what all that entails so mm-hmm. yeah and yeah I the ta- that's where i like what you said yeah, about well the, just the it's not a zero-sum game like and, and the way that question is often framed not that that scenario is intrinsically theoretical okay that does happen um, but the way it's framed, it is theoretical. It's like, wait, wait, you're going to just be nonviolent and not stop the killer through violence. Like, whoa, whoa, there, there's, let, let's just, let's paint a, let's paint a, a real picture here. Okay. So guy breaks in, he's dead set on, you know, beating up my kids, killing my wife, raping my family and everything. Um, how would I even kill him? Well, you use your gun. Well, I don't keep a loaded gun in the house. Okay. Let's just say you have a loaded gun in your house. Okay, well, do you know the risk of a child dying with a loaded loaded gun in the house far outweighs this, this mm-hmm. scenario where I didn't sleep with some dude's wife. Right. I'm not involved in uh, a drug cartel or like there's there's no reason why somebody would come in. Not that it can't happen, but the percentages of my kids being at risk with a loaded gun in the house go way far beyond the scenario you're painting. Okay, okay, let's just say, let's just scratch all that just to say for for the sake of argument, you have a loaded gun in your house. Okay. Am I a good shot? Like, I'm not a very good shot. Like, I'd be scared I would, like, miss the guy and blow one of my kids' heads off or something who's standing behind him. No, no, you're a really good shot. Well, if I'm a good shot, I'm going to shoot the gun out of his hand or something, you know. Well, no, 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 no. Like, you're a good shot, but not that. And all of a sudden, it just starts to get, like, well, are we talking about the real world or, or not? Like, what if he's right. coming What if right. he's coming in, he's storming through my house, and bam, you know, I'd pull a John Wayne, blow his head off. What if he was actually after my tv because his kid's starving to death and he's a homeless guy or whatever wanted to go sell you know i how do i even know he's dead set on is he a robot like, how do you know how would i know he's 100 percent dead set with no other negotiation or restraint that's going to turn him away from killing my family he's a he's pre-programmed to kill my family and unless i like it just starts to get a little bit 
I don't know. It, it, it's intended to be, here's a real life example, mm-hmm. you know, but it's like, it's kind of not like yeah. you painted that really otherworldly scenario. Is that fair? I mean, right. am I, I don't want to get lost in the weeds of it. And I, I, I don't like you. I don't want to evade. Like, I think it's a, it's, it's something that I've really has challenged me. And I, you know, people say, what would you do? Say, I, mean, I don't know what I would do. All, all I know is a person is trying to understand the Bible to say, I don't have a verse in the new Testament or, or a theme or a trajectory or in, in, in my ethical state authority that says, no guy breaks in, bam, blow his head off. Like, I, I don't, I don't have that as far as I can see in the new mm-hmm. Testament. So I don't know. Sorry. I'm taking, I'm taking too much of this is supposed to be about you guys. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think, I mean, the way you kind of deconstructed the question itself sort of points to how it's based on a certain almost pathology, but certain, a certainly sort of a, a view of the world in which I am responsible for my things to protect my stuff. And I think right. when you play that out further, it sort of shows how maybe American Christianity has gotten into some of the dead ends it's gone because of that kind of perspective. So not that wanting to protect your loved ones is a bad thing, obviously, but when you kind of keep teasing that out further and further and living your life in light of that, I think mm-hmm. it leads to greater um, kind of desire for control and all of that type of thing. And so I think it's, if that's the foundation for your approach, as opposed to the teachings of Jesus, then, you know, you're already kind of off track a little bit. Like tragedies do happen in the world. We mourn them. We try our best to avoid them as possible. But if we kind of make all of our life decisions based on that very remote possibility of a tragedy, I think it could lead yeah. us down the wrong road. I, I'm, yeah. cur- I, I'm curious about the world your- is The world is not a safe place, but I think that doesn't, that, that, that we engage the world expecting. Yeah, go ahead. No, my, um, yeah, I think our, but there's a lag time in the in the in the internet connection here, so that's why we're we're <laughs> unintentionally talking over each other. Um, go ahead, uh, Miles. You you were on a thought there. Just why don't you repeat it? No, I won't cut you off. So I think that I'm trying to remember what I was even going to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that the world the world is a violent place. I think that that's I don't think that you can there's there's any way to to avoid that. Um, but it doesn't then follow that the way that you engage a violent world is with the return of violence. Um, there's the world is not, it's not a safe place, but it doesn't then follow that you do everything conceivable to avoid, uh, danger that you can, or that you could prepare for any, every conceivable eventuality. Mm -hmm. I think that that's, uh, that's a paralyzing way to live. And I think Jesus fully acknowledges that the world is a violent place and it's a dangerous place. But yet this is the way that that Christ has called us to live through it as a reflection of uh, of the God that we have been called to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious about your two chapters, well, all of them really, but chapters five and six. So chapter five is uh, realist nonviolence. And that might be kind of stuff we're kind of been talking about um but the second uh, chapter six in particular nonviolence as political practice because that's another question often comes up like you know are are we are we i don't know saying that like nations should be nonviolent like should should are we saying america should 
you know, deconstruct its military? Like, is this is this even the design of a Christian ethic? Or I'm assuming I don't, I don't know if that's what you're. Well, let me ask you rather than assuming. I have the authors in front of me. Um, what talk to us about chapter six and and yeah, what's what's that chapter all about? Yeah, well, um, th- there's kind of a progression throughout the book in a in a way from chapter one, looking at nonviolence as Christian discipleship. And a lot of the questions we've been talking about today kind of would fall under that category. In fact, we mentioned your book on nonviolence within that chapter um, as part of kind of that approach to nonviolence as Christian discipleship. But in looking at 20th and 21st century thinkers, Christian thinkers, we've seen that some of them come at these questions differently. And it's not that they're not committed to following Jesus or don't follow the Bible, but it's maybe their entryway into nonviolence comes from a different direction than I read the Sermon on the Mount and now I'm convinced. And, you know, your book, I remember reading it the first time and kind of being struck by like this sense of you almost seemed as surprised as anybody else that like (laughs) nonviolence is what you came to. Like, I, you know, I like hunting and I, you know, all this stuff, but here, here I am. What am I supposed to do? This is what the Bible says. Um, but some other thinkers kind of come at these questions differently. And the, the chapter on realist nonviolence kind of arises from a challenge in around World War II from Reinhold Niebuhr, who is a Christian realist, who said basically, like, if you want to follow Jesus literally, that's fine. Go be Amish or Mennonite. Like, we need those people to show us kind of the ideal. <laughs> but if you want to actually make difference in the world, mm-hmm. you have to give up nonviolence. And so he he creates a binary between mm-hmm. absolute nonviolence and political um, kind of responsibility or responsibility. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And what we find is other thinkers come along after him and, and say, are those our only two options? Mm. Or are there ways to be politically responsible to actually try to combat the evil in the world, maybe not to, to make nations pacifists, like, like you put it, but maybe to make them more just and more equitable. Are there ways that we can um, maybe minimize the causes that lead to war in the world? And can we do those things without engaging in violence? And so a lot of the thinkers in that chapter are kind of taking up that challenge of Niebuhr and trying to say, what are the things we can be doing now? You know, it, um, Glenn Stassen's an example that we talk about in that chapter where he talks about these nonviolent initiatives that can kind of help reduce the amount of violence in the world, help lead to mm. a more just and equitable world, not denying that, um, you know, the world isn't Christian, nations aren't Christian, they're not going to completely lay down their arms, but maybe we can move it in a more just direction. Mm. And then, Miles, I don't know if you want to talk about uh, political practice a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So chapter six, uh, the political practice, it draws in, I think, some figures that would be fairly familiar. It talks about uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, Cesar Chavez. But it gets to this question of what does what is the role of nonviolence uh, within the political process? Um, so. I mean, this is going to be the one that's most familiar to, I think, to most folks is the ways in which nonviolence functions as a form of protest or as a, a form of uh, political pressure internally. So it pairs well with 
the the chapter that David was just talking about, okay. which deals more with the question of nonviolence as it relates to nations externally. Um, so that it's not just people protesting in the streets, but it, it is an it, it provides actionable ways to engage uh, the world at large. Okay. Do you guys have thoughts about Christians in the police force? Do you guys wrestle with that in the book? I get that question a decent amount. Yeah, I remember you talking about that in your book. Because um, wasn't your dad a police officer? Yeah, he was LAPD for 17 years. And, and this was uh, Richard Hayes, I think he said was one of the more difficult ones for him. And I've seen, I've, I've read among, you know, the, the fairly broad nonviolent camp, you know, different perspectives on it. Um, yeah. So this is where, if you take kind of a um, strict view of nonviolence as not participating in war or um, not killing someone, you know, strictly taking it as like bloodshed being what violence is and nonviolence being not doing that, then I could see some um, forms of policing that would still fall under that rubric. So like Gerald Schlabach is a thinker we oh, talk yeah. about in the book where he actually mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. advocates for what he calls just policing, right. which is sort of an alternative to war. Um, and it's, it's sort of modeled on policing. But if you think of nonviolent, if you think of violence more broadly, which some of the chapters, like the chapter on liberationists, um, mm -hmm. nonviolence, we talk about how um, people like Oscar Romero view violence as not a break from the norm, but actually part of the norm. Like our, our lives are so enmeshed in violence. And I think if you take that approach, then policing itself might be a way of um, maintaining some of those inequities and some of those violences we find in the world. So even if they're not literally shedding blood, they might be a part of that system that could be violent. And so I think there's critiques beyond just whether they should carry guns or not. Although, you know, with the police shootings we, we see in the news frequently, we know there is that kind of violence as well. So right. Um, the Mennonite church that I'm a part of has some curriculum on police abolition. If your <laughs> listeners want to look that up on uh, Mennonite Church USA, I'm sure it would be a very challenging read, but they're trying to mm -hmm. pull in thinkers from um, black and queer communities and others who are who are finding um, the police presence as a form of oppression. That's one perspective, but mm. yeah. Yeah, that one's, that one's hard for me. I mean... <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't because I mean, people will, you know, say I'm a hypocrite if like, well, OK, even if you wouldn't be a cop, you would call the cops if somebody right? <laughs> like you would. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I think I would. Is that. <laughs> um, but yeah, is that a I don't know. It's hard. I don't, I don't know what to do. I mean, it's still it's it is still to me. Not. Well. It's not like, like the main question again goes back to as Bible believing Christians, uh, what does Jesus in the New Testament say about how Christians should confront evil? Um, and then, you know, all these kind of what about this? What about that? I think are they should flow from that paradigm. Um, and I think there's, yeah, there's some that are just, they're just tough, you know? Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, when I did a little bit of research on this, for my book, I mean, gosh, it's been like 10 years now, but, um, 
I mean, we, we often think of our kind of U.S. American situation, which is very different and unique. And uh, there's, uh, I think, other countries still today, or at least in the past, where um, like police didn't carry guns and it wasn't a, you know, um, it, it, the question wouldn't have been as pressing for other forms of policing around the world and historically compared to like the situation in America where there's 350 what million guns in the U S and we have a very unique kind of gun culture and, you know, we're built on a gun foundation and um, it's just, it is a, it is a unique situation. All that to say, like, like the question is kind of specific for the American context and is, is, is different if you apply it to other, other contexts. Not, not that it's completely different, but I don't know. Yeah, Miles, I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about the uh, apocalyptic nonviolence chapter. Oh, yeah. Just yeah, in a sense a of how it creates oh, man. just between the way of life, the way of Jesus and the way of death and how that might play into this conversation mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah, so one of the streams that we talk about, and this is probably a stream that's not going to be known uh, as, it's not known as well, and it's probably not known to your to your listeners, is what we call apocalyptic nonviolence. So got the book here in front of me. It is yeah. chapter uh, what chapter chapter four four yeah chapter four of the book. So it centers on a guy. One of the key figures here is a guy named William Stringfellow who wrote who hmm. did a lot of his work in the sixties, seventies, and eighties. Um, and so one of the key one of the key theses here is that the the call to nonviolence is not a withdrawal from the world, but it is a it is an active call of God to dismantle those things which are causing death in the world. That the ultimate struggle here is, I mean, this is, this is like deeply new Testament, right? It's like death is the final enemy. And so death shows up and it, it manifests itself, its powers within creation in all kinds of ways that he calls that this is what Stringfellow calls like the principalities. These are all emissaries of death in one way or another. And so the, the way that Christians deal with violence is by actively opposing those things which are causing death to manifest itself within the world. Hmm. And so you have um, Stringfellow uh, himself did not do this, but he had so there were a couple of uh, Catholic priests and a collection of other folks that would do things like uh, break into draft offices during Vietnam and burn the draft cards you know, or destroy draft records mm-hmm. or would break into nuclear facilities and uh, try to dismantle the various weapons. And so I think broadly applied, like this is, this is a form of nonviolence because you're not, it, it, it's, it recognizes that the real struggle here is against death itself and being willing to destroy those things which are proliferating death within the world. Interesting. Yeah. And so when you, when you, when you, yeah. So when you think about it within the, 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 the question of policing, it, it begins to ask the question, what are those, what are those elements within, uh, like order, like a, the way in which we think of ordering society, what are those things which are, uh, which are helping to provide some sense of regulation and order? And what are those things which are, which are contributing to, uh, the death and, de- and degradation of people? Right. So it might entail uh, it might entail some things. It might entail, you know, not dismantling everything about law. It might not entail dismantling everything about um, 
providing people who are, you know, who are judges or adjudicators and people in conflict. It might not, it probably wouldn't entail that, but it probably would mean uh, looking hard at the ways in which we do that. You know, are the ways in which we're, we're thinking about an orderly society, are those actually contributing to the death of people? Are those contributing to uh, the degradation and oppression of people, mm. right? And those would be the things from an apocalyptic perspective that you need to really dismantle, right? Those things have to yeah. go. Yeah, that's good. No, that's good. I wonder how much of, uh, I mean, isn't isn't a lot violence wrapped up a lot with things like socioeconomic status and poverty and hunger and you know, um, which that's there's there's got to be. I mean. There, yeah, there's got to be like more systemic questions and th- things that questions that need to be asked and things that need to be addressed if we're really concerned about again confronting evil, stopping uh, the innocent from being oppressed. You know, like we're we're dealing with really complex uh, systems of injustice that are wrapped up into that question, rather than just no bad guy pulls a gun, you shoot him. You know, it's like well, okay, right. I, I don't I, again, I don't want to avoid that question. Um, but I want to set it in a more complex real life, you know, context, but David, you want to talk about the liberationist chapter? Cause that really gets yeah, into I mean, that that's question. Where that of, question yeah. really comes to the fore. Um, we, we focus on Latin American liberation. There's mm-hmm. also black liberation, women's liberation, so on. Um, but, but our chapter, um, draws heavily on people like, um, Helder Kamara, um, um, uh, Oscar Romero and others who are not saying like economics and politics lead to violence, but that those things can themselves be a form of violence. And so for them, nonviolence is about just what you were saying, Preston, like confronting, actively confronting those injustices because those are forms of violence and not just in an abstract way, but in a very real way that those are leading to death. And that's been a a big challenge for me um, in researching for this book is that I came to Christian nonviolence, as I shared uh, at the the beginning, from a very kind of, the Bible says that I should do it, end of story type of perspective, kind of what we talk about of nonviolence of Christian discipleship. I'm still committed to that, but I've seen ways in which it goes deeper than just kind of a literal refusal to engage in bloodshed, but actually Hmm. trying to identify where violence is in our society and how we can be actively undoing that. And so even the word nonviolence might itself be a little bit of a misnomer because it sounds like there's violence and then we don't do that. So we're nonviolent. And and I think that word anti-violence we used in the last chapter might be kind of the direction that I'm moving where it's more about what are we as Christians doing to seek justice, to seek peace in the world? And how can we undo those violences all around us? Yeah, no, that's good. I like that. That's yeah. Um, or even uh, Ron Sider, he, he's got that book that documents kind of all the nonviolent revolts against systems mm-hmm. of oppression. When, mm-hmm. when people tried to, t- for instance, you know, a, a, I think Liberia, I mean, there's so many examples we can list, but like countries where there was a horrific oppression top down, right? And uh, the people who are being oppressed, even sometimes when they try to use violence, the people, the oppressor 
I mean, just overpower them, you know. But it's it is shocking. I, I haven't I haven't double checked all his research, so I I mean, uh, you know, I'll let people fact check this. But it, it is shocking how many powerful systems of oppression have been dismantled through nonviolent means when violent means did nothing but the opposite. Now I I, I still do stand by you know my statement in the book and it's something you guys have said. You know, I, I wrangle is a faithfulness, not necessarily perceived effectiveness. I, I think that mm-hmm. is ethically more superior. Um, but at the same time, it is shocking at how often nonviolent revolts, it went on a systemic level, are actually both faithful and more effective as well. Is that is that valid? Did you guys talk about that? Have you verified, you know, Cider's survey in his book? Um Yeah, I don't think we we did. I don't think we we fact checked all of uh, cider stuff. There's there's a couple of and we get into a little bit of that in in the book. There's a couple of there's a researcher that I follow named uh, Dr. Erica Chenoweth. Huh. She's at the uh, the Coble school the the Coble school, which is in Colorado. Uh, it's part of uh, University of Denver, I believe. But she has documented. She's done. Uh, a lot of the social scientific work on this and documenting the ways in which nonviolence has been used within popular revolts or within within political process. Um, and the results are actually really, it's really interesting because uh, sometimes it's nonviolence plus other factors. Sometimes it's nonviolence alone. Um, I think if we look for nonviolence to do all of the heavy lifting, I think that you can find those examples. Yeah. Uh, but frequently it's nonviolence this again kind of touches on the realist chapter that we wrote. Mm-hmm. Uh, frequently, it's nonviolent protest in combination with other factors. Okay. Um, so something like, uh, say, the transition of power in Poland in the 1980s, uh, we we could we could like mythologize it and say, yeah, it was just like purely nonviolence that did this, but it was actually nonviolence in combination with uh, international pressure and mm-hmm. support from the church and uh, some economics. And so it was just like this complex of factors, okay. but which nonviolence, nonviolence did play a significant role, but maybe not the only, wasn't the only factor there. But even those are still nonviolent, right? I mean, econ- economic sanctions yeah. and publicity. And I mean, that's, well, that's, or, that gets a little, di- that gets a little d- d- dicey uh, okay. <laughs> because then you want, you, you might wander, the critique that this gets to part of the ways in which some of these types might argue with one another. When you start talking about economic sanctions, then you have to ask the question, well, who's being really affected by the mm. economic sanctions, right? Yeah. So a liberationist perspective might push back and say, well, not so fast. Okay. You think that economic sanctions is a form of nonviolence, but it's actually really hurting the poorest at the, like those at the, at the subsistence level, right? It's not really putting pressure on, Okay. Those at the top that have the most wealth to withstand it. It's really putting. It's really doing violence against the the most vulnerable within that society. Okay. So that's fair. We do mention the we do mention the story of Liberia actually in the last chapter because that was a woman's led movement. Um, I don't know if you've seen the the documentary "Pray the Devil Back to Hell" or if your if your listeners I've, have ever yeah. heard of that. You you got to check that out. It, it tells a story about how Christian and Muslim women basically 
combine forces nonviolently to stop the the war there. And as Miles said, there's other factors going going on at the same time, but it was really a women's led prayer movement that turned the tides on on that yeah. war. So that's the compelling story that I think fits Ron Sider's narrative. And, mm-hmm. and one thing, um, you know, Sider, he's a, he's a scholar for sure, but he's also an activist who yeah. puts his action <laughs> where his, his mouth is. And he gave a speech back in the eighties, um, basically saying we should be as committed to nonviolence as, soldiers are to war and out of that was a group founded called the christian peacemaker teams i think they're now called community teams but they go around the world basically Mm -hmm. to war-torn areas to try to get in the way and to try to disrupt the violences that are happening and and that Mm kind of goes back to cider's influence there wow that's wild yeah the library was that was that the one where they all the women said we're not gonna have sex with y'all till there's peace or something like there's like a sex strike or something (laughs) But that was creative. Oh, we lost David again. Miles, is that? I don't want to get that. Yeah, wrong. I don't. Oh. I don't recall the specifics of it. That reminds me of uh, there was a movie. Uh, what was it? It was a. It was a Spike Lee movie several years ago where he he redoes Les Estrada. But that's the basic premise of it: is that there's oh. there's conflict and the women decide to to with to to not have sex with any of the warriors until <laughs> there's peace, and so that eventuates peace. It's creative. Um, yeah, but I don't, I don't, I don't remember the, I don't remember the specifics of it. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna, we're gonna wrap things up here. I've taken you over an hour. We lost David. David is no longer with us. Hopefully, he's still alive. Hopefully, no one broke into his house and <laughs> disconnected his internet, violated his internet. Um. Uh. Well, dude, seriously, thank you so much for this book. I, I, yeah, I'm excited to get it, check it out, and I hope it really uh, stirs some great conversations. I mean, that, that's that's, I don't know. I'm my audience is probably mixed. Some people were fully convinced others are maybe appalled that we're even talking about this. Other people are somewhere in between. Um, the main thing is again, it's, it's really good to ask the question, like what does the Bible say about this? What is a countercultural mm-hmm. Christian view of things like violence in the face of evil, whether it's evil being done to you, done to someone else, whether it's systemic evil whatever it is, like, um, I think we do need to take seriously what the New Testament has to say about that. And that the, I, I don't want to say like, therefore, everybody will be <laughs> right where mm-hmm. we're at. But I mean, it, we, we do need to have this conversation, right? So I, I mean, I hope your book, if it doesn't convince everybody, will at least stir some really good conversations, drive people yet again, back to the text, and the, the countercultural upside down nature of the kingdom that Jesus sought to establish, you know? Um, so right. Yeah, the goal of the book is just to open it up and say you the Christian nonviolence has has labored under a variety of stereotypes for far too long. And there's a whole lot of directions and a whole lot of folks that you you've never heard of, but you should. Hmm. And so if it's easy to uh it's easy to dismiss it's easy to dismiss it at all you have as a caricature of it. Yeah. So let's get down to the sources, let's get down to the actual figures, let them speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. And then we can have a real we can have a real robust conversation. But I think, yeah, by and large, it, it it's hard to have a real robust conversation when no one knows what 
Christian nonviolence. Yeah. After that I experienced when, when I, uh, it felt like it was very one-sided. Yeah. You know, there was there was a great deal of, of unawareness, I'll say, as to what Christian nonviolence entailed. So, yeah. Good. David, uh, you missed it, now, but I was... Uh, now, now there's no excuse. Yeah, I was... Uh, we're, we're closing this town. I got to run, uh, and I've taken you over an hour. But uh, yeah, thanks, David and, and Miles for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And hope your book uh, finds its way into many people's hands. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Take care.